Hello everyone, I'm Dr. Darsh Shah. And I'm Dr. Ultima Shraja. And welcome to Medicine Redefined. A podcast where we will explore the often overlooked but necessary components of health, what we consider to be the fundamentals. We will investigate topics and practices that can give you and your patients the best chance to optimize a healthy lifestyle. It's time to move the needle forward and put the health back in healthcare. All right, guys, do we have a special treat for you today? As you know, we spent a great deal of time exploring how to remain and or get healthy on this show. And one of the leading causes of sickness in the developed world, at least, is cardiovascular disease. Over the past year or so, we've been looking far and wide to bring on a special guest to take a deep dive into this crucial topic. And our guest today is truly an exceptional person who understands and shares a passion for preventative cardiology. That person is none other than Dr. Nicole Harkin. Dr. Harkin attained her medical degree from Boston University and went on to complete her internal medicine residency at Columbia. She stuck around NYC for a fellowship in cardiology at New York University, in which she served as a chief fellow. She went on to complete advanced training in clinical epidemiology, which is where we will spend a great deal of time today. You'll find that this can be a complex yet important topic to understand if one is to prioritize mitigating the risk of the leading cause of morbidity and mortality worldwide. Recently, Dr. Harkin moved to San Francisco with her family and founded Whole Heart Cardiology. With the mission of providing patient-centered cardiac care, evidence-based nutritional guidance, and personalized lifestyle plans for her patients in a modern setting. So in this episode, we touch on various topics, including, of course, her journey and passion for lipidology. We talk about the current state of metabolic ill health in developed countries. We then shift gears and touch on the various ways of risk stratification, which include diagnostics, seeing as she is an expert in lipids, we discuss you know, both normal cholesterol and quote unquote, good versus bad cholesterol and some of the basics uh, in that sense. We also talk about routine and more advanced testing, some of which I've become very invested in, things like just ApoB, LDL particle numbers, and size, and of course, LP little a, which is an extremely important uh, thing for us to understand, both for ourselves and our patients. We also talk about other metrics she routinely uses, such as imaging modalities. We briefly touch on some treatment strategies, and of course, no conversation of cardiovascular disease and lipids is complete without the discussion of statins, which are highly prevalent in today's society. Overall, I found this to be an extremely enjoyable episode, and there was so much we wanted to cover, but just unfortunately ran out of time. Fortunately, though, Dr. Harkin agreed to sit down for part two, which will, re- will be released right after this episode. Now, without further delay, please enjoy this episode with Dr. Nicole Harkin. Dr. Nicole Harkin, thanks so much for coming on to this podcast. You're so welcome. Thanks for inviting me. I'm excited. Absolutely. So, you know, Ultimash and I have had Medicine Redefined now for about a year. And for a year now, we've been saying we need to talk about cardiology, right? The number one um, leading risk factor and death, you know, when, when we talk about being healthy and lifespan, um, longevity. So finally, you've made our wish come true. So again, thanks. But I really want to delve into your journey, right? I think there's a lot of pre-meds and medical students who think about going into cardiology, you know, when they, when they think about medicine. What made you choose cardiology? Take us through kind of, you know, back then your, a little bit about your journey. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so I, I started actually thinking, um, I was kind of a late 
bloomer into cardiology. I feel like a lot of cardiologists you talk to, they've like known they wanted to be a cardiologist for a really long time. Um, I sort of came into it later in my medicine training. Um, so early on, I was actually, um, and remain interested in, but very, very interested in, in global health and, and international health and did a lot of work abroad. Um, and so at that point, I really thought I was going to be an infectious disease doctor, um, which is kind of is a natural compliment to that experience. Um, and so throughout medical school, that's really what I thought I was going to do. Um, and um, thought I was kind of going to do a public health sort of uh, dual degree and things like that. Um, and then eventually started kind of getting um, interested in cardiology. I think a lot of that started actually when I was in Africa. And um, obviously, uh, a lot of my work there was um, infectious disease related as well, um, AIDS and TB and things like that. But started to actually really truly understand the global impact that cardiovascular disease has. Um, so it is the number one killer worldwide in every country. And um, oh. and so just seeing just rip roaring uncontrolled hypertension, um, lots of premature heart disease and things like that um, and started kind of, and that's kind of, I think when the first light bulb went off, like, oh yeah, like there's a lot else out there. Um, and then, I mean, the heart's cool too. So then I started getting really, you know, I mean, it's, it's, it's the, the physiology of how the heart works and all the things that happen is really just intellectually very interesting as well. Um, so, uh, so just really started, uh, kind of thinking about that. Um, and then I went to Columbia for internal medicine residency and it's hard not to like cardiology there. Um, the, hmm. the cardiology department is huge there. Um, very influential, uh, did a whole rotation, uh, there and just really kind of fell in love. And so ultimately decided to sort of marry my two interests in kind of preventive health um, and cardiology and really kind of become a preventive cardiologist. Um, so that's when I, um, in fellowship at NYU, um, they have a huge uh, preventive cardiologist preventive cardiology uh, group there. Um, so work with them a lot, which was a great experience. And I can talk about that more. Um, and then eventually decided to uh, get uh, boarded in, in lipido clinical lipidology. Um, and, and that's sort of where all of that, that experience um, kind of evolved for me. I love that. I, I do agree. The heart is very, very cool. <laughs> and I always <clears throat> tell my colleagues that, you know, in another life, if I didn't go down the sports medicine pathway, which is my calling, I, I certainly would have done cardiology. And yeah, you've had a long journey, right? I mean, so uh, three years of internal medicine, three years of cardiology and lipidology. Is that um, more fellowship time or do you just sit for boards on that? How does that work? Yeah, so it's it just really independent study, and then you sit for for additional boards. So, um, so uh, the National Lipid Association has kind of some self study um, stuff that you can go through and go to some of their conferences. Um, they've got like a, a crash course for um, people that are looking to to get into lipids, and you can attend the conference um, and then take it. And um, was definitely mentored by by many at. At NYU, um, I actually was the first general cardiology at NYU to to take those boards and pass them. So that was kind of kind of exciting. That's awesome, and I agree. You know, as you alluded to, that cardiovascular disease is the is the number one killer globally, right? Particularly in the the developed world. I mean, that's certainly the case. And we've talked about metabolic ill health several times on this episode, right? And I think this stat that I've thrown out several times, I wonder if 43% obesity in this country, in the United States, right? And the expectation is that 
in another eight years, uh, that's going to be 50%. And I don't, well, I shouldn't say this, but I think largely lack of education isn't a problem, right? We spend a lot of time talking about fruits and vegetables on this and you know, we can do all these things, yet people continue to get you know, unhealthier and healthier. Um, recently, a study that comes, I can't remember, but I think it was 2018, it was published that 88% of Americans had at least one marker for metabolic syndrome, right? Um, I think that the most recent data, when you look at um, weight gain during the COVID-19 pandemic over the last two years, uh, in just not only the, the adult population, but in the pediatric population, I think there was some stat that between the millennials, which I think all of us are millennials probably, um, it's like 25 to 40 something pounds. Um, so, you know, I, I say all that to say that it, it doesn't seem to be getting better, despite all the information that's out there. And one of the things that you know, taking all those things into account, that's important for us to do is spend a lot more time talking about risk stratification and diagnostics and things that how can we identify these things earlier on, which is what you're passionate about, right? Preventative cardiology, um, no, rather than later on sick care, um, you know? And so what are some ways that you tend to detect disease much earlier on? You know, maybe not in their people in their 50s and 60s when people really start worrying about their heart health but 20s and 30s yeah so um i mean we have a, a pretty robust understanding of the major risk factors for cardiovascular disease right um and i think in general we don't do a great job of employing those tools and using them on a regular basis so um i think I don't know what the stats are for how many millennials have a primary care doctor or have ever seen a primary care doctor, but I'm sure it's like pretty low. Um, so unfortunately what happens is a lot of people don't get screened early on um, and have, don't identify you know, cholesterol, um, high blood pressure, all of these things that we be, should be screening for on a, on a regular basis, right? Um, and so you know, just kind of even taking some of the traditional risk factors that we know about, um, high blood pressure, BMI, smoking, you know, all the usual suspects. Um, I, I think that those don't get identified um, early enough on. Um, and that's just kind of some of the, the stuff that we all know, right? That's even before you get to some of the more advanced stuff, which I'm sure, sure we'll talk about um, in terms of really fine tuning risk and looking at different advanced cholesterol uh, markers and um, in early signs of insulin resistance and all of this other stuff that, that we should arguably be doing as well. Dr. Hark, at, at what age would you say you would typically look at risk factors then? You know, I mean, I would assume when you look at the ASCVD, it's like 40 to 79, right? For, I think for optimal results. But now when we see obesity rates climbing so high, are we looking even younger, less than 20 maybe, to kind of look at these lipid panels, for instance? Yeah, no, for sure. So pediatricians are supposed to draw cholesterol panels in all in all children at some point. And, and they're your historically, it was because we were screening for genetic dyslipidemias, right? So, okay, um, yeah. so, you know, kids as early as eight can go on statins if they have evidence of, of 
a very elevated LDL cholesterol, which is diagnostic of familial hyperlipidemia. So traditionally, that's what we were screening for. But if you talk to pediatricians now, they're actually screening them early for, you know, and, and they check blood pressure and things like that, but they are mm-hmm. seeing blood pressure, cholesterol, um, BMI, as you mentioned, um, in adolescents. And so now we're not only seeing evidence of uh, genetic dyslipidemias and issues of genetics, but really, truly lifestyle-related um, elevated risk of cardiovascular disease. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and that's truly scary because in the prevention world, we talk a lot about primordial prevention, which is like really starting young. Well, what's primordial prevention anymore? Is it, right. you know, in utero? So, um, so I think that the ball feels like it keeps moving in terms of, okay, you know, in the cardiovascular world, we have lots of conversation about this blurred line now between primary and secondary prevention um, based on some of diagnostics and things like that we can do now. But I even feel like we're, we're blurring the lines completely and totally. Um, and, you know, and we know from studies decades and decades ago that um, that young men and women who died of other causes, um, if you look at, so I don't know if you guys are aware of some of these studies, but from decades and decades ago, I think it was even the Vietnam War, they would do autopsy studies and look at men and women who had died um, in, in war. Um, and there was already signs of atherosclerosis. Mm-hmm these young people. And this was then. Um, so, you know, I, I'm sure that that, that is even worse today. Absolutely. I mean, I think in, in all of our pathology classes, we learn that this, um, you know, the atherogenic process begins in your teenage years, right? And it's kind of exactly what you're describing here. So let's, let's dive a little bit deeper into, you know, we've talked about the lipid panel, you've alluded to LDL and how that can be diagnostic when it's extremely high in, in, in the pediatric population. For those who might not know, what are the different things that would pop up on a lipid panel, like, you know, total cholesterol? And then um, from your cardiologist's eye, um, what stands out to you most? What are you, what are you looking for? You know, how do you, what do you make of the lipid panel? Yeah. So if you go to your doctor, um, the the traditional lipid panel that you'll get um, is something that's comprised of um, the total cholesterol, which is all the cholesterol that we can measure that are contained within uh, the lipoprotein um, particles in our bloodstream. Um, and then that gets broken down into um, HDL cholesterol, LDL cholesterol, which is, is calculated, um, and triglycerides. Um, so LDL cholesterol um, is what I mentioned. It's, it's calculated um, uh, based on the other parameters. And that is a measurement of the amount of cholesterol contained within your LDL particles. And that's important and does not get discussed enough. And we'll get into why that's important. But um, but it is a... Um, it, it is a lot of people think that that's kind of the end all be all number. Um, and first of all, it's calculated. And second of all, it's the cholesterol contained within in the particles themselves. Um, and so um, the reason we it is important to look at your LDL cholesterol is um, that is where most of our data is at this point in terms of if we, what does an LDL, elevated LDL cholesterol mean? And we have tons of data, Mendelian randomization, um, epidemiologic, RCTs, all of this that lines up that shows that elevated LDL, as your LDL cholesterol goes up, your risk of cardiovascular disease and death from cardiovascular disease goes up. And as we lower it, um, your risk goes down as well. Um, And so that's where a lot of our our data is. And it's a a very strong correlation and a very robust correlation. 
Um, and so uh, much of the drugs that we use um, are, are the kind of the first line offense against cardiovascular disease is working on lowering that LDL cholesterol. And so that is our primary target um, and will probably remain so for, for some time um, in terms of trying to get that to um, a, a lower level to prevent cardiovascular disease um, because it is causative. It is, um, it is necessary um, to develop cardiovascular disease. Um, and maybe it's worth briefly going into the pathophysiology of what is atherosclerosis. I don't know if that's worth it or not. Yes, no. Yeah, yes, Absolutely. Please. Yeah. So super high level of it is, um, as I mentioned, these, uh, these lipoproteins, um, predominantly your LDL um, particles um, that contain cholesterol that are thought to be atherogenic. Um, and there's also VLDL and other types of, of lipoproteins, and we can get into those at some point. But um, but those are the, the primary, in most individuals, um, the, the largest population of, of um, uh, atherogenic um, uh, particles are those LDL. Um, and so um, what happens when those um, are those that concentration of um, ApoB containing um, lipoproteins is elevated, um, that concentration um, is higher in the plasma and then you know diffuses across the endothelium um, into the arterial wall. And um, and through complex things that that occur, the LDL uh, cholesterol gets oxidized. Um, that's highly um, pro-inflammatory, and you get the beginning stages of an atheroma. And so, um, and then as those sort of grow, um, then you can get either, you can get different complications, either obstructive coronary disease, which is when that um, plaque becomes large enough that it's obstructing the blood flow to the um, to the heart. Um, and that's when people get angina and chest pain, um, or you can also get um, a myocardial infarction, which is when that um, Atheroma actually bursts. Um, actually, one of my mentors always uh, compared it to a pimple popping, which I think is you know, absolutely disgusting, but very like you can just visualize exactly what's yeah. happening. Um, and then that sets off uh, uh, a the inflammatory cascade and a coagulation cascade, and you get a clot that forms kind of on that, um, and that's a, a myocardial infarction. And so, um, so those are kind of what we and, and importantly with that, um, you know, studies have shown, and it's somewhat controversial, um, but studies have definitely shown that it's not always the biggest. You know, we you know when we're looking at casts and things like that, you know, get nervous about the eighty and the ninety percent lesions, but sometimes it's those twenty and thirty percent. That that can cause mm -hmm. the, the MI. Um, so um, so so those are that's what we're trying to prevent. And endothelial dysfunction is important um, and allows those uh, atherogenic particles to get into the endothelium more easily. So smoking, obesity, um, you know, all that kind of stuff can at hypertension um, make our blood vessels more prone to allowing that cholesterol to deposit. But you have to have mm -hmm. cholesterol in order to make plaque, right? And so while it's important, obviously, to control these other risk factors, if we really control and lower that concentration of LDL particles in the bloodstream, we can um, really prevent the, the deposition and then therefore coronary artery disease. I love that you said that. And it, it, it's funny because you started off with this is going to be a high level uh, discussion, which it is. And, and I think that for you, you understand that. And I think for most people, when they look at a lipid panel, they kind of just characterize good versus bad cholesterol, right? Like, oh, HDL high, good, uh, LDL high, bad. And it's much more complex than that, as you just briefly touched on. 
Um, you mentioned LDL particle number and particle size a couple of times, or you alluded to at least particle size. And I, I want to go down this rabbit hole a little bit further because there are some people who will talk about how it's critical for us to evaluate particle number and particle size, because that's really what matters, right? And, and you kind of uh, mentioned that LDL is calculated, the LDLC that's typically um, shown on on a, on a limit panel. And so say a little bit more about uh, why it's valuable, if at all, in your experience to check, you know, an LDL particle number and size and, and what that means, you know, in terms of small, medium and large LDLs. Yeah, so this is somewhat controversial, but um, and and it remains that LDL cholesterol is for many a very good indicator of cardiovascular risk associated with your cholesterol. Um, that said, it misses many people, and in particular, it tends to miss. Um, and I have seen this time and time again in in individuals in whom um, there uh, there is the risk factors of metabolic syndrome, obesity, et cetera. And as you mentioned, now 42 to 43% of our population fits that criteria, um, at least has obesity and is likely also um, metabolically, um, ha has some metabolic issues associated with it. Um, and so in that population, the, um, the association, the discordance between your LDL um, cholesterol and the number of particles you have um, is higher. And so you will underestimate their risk associated with LDL cholesterol um, if you're just looking at that LDL cholesterol. And so what I mean by that is that in um, as I said, for most people, when you measure the cholesterol that's in these lipoproteins, you're getting a good sense of how, about how many they have. Um, now, in, in individuals who have very high triglycerides and uh, metabolic syndrome, you tend to get um, several. So instead of having, say, five large fluffy LDL cholesterols, you'll have 10 small dense LDL particles. And what we've shown in those individuals is that those who have this LDL discordance, um, meaning they'll have higher APOB or LDL particle, however you kind of want to measure it, um, then their LDL cholesterol would lead you to believe. So you'll get their LDL cholesterol back, their standard lipid panel back. Oh, your LDL cholesterol is, you know, 95 or 100 and eh, not so bad, right? But then you draw an APOB or an LDL particle on them and their risk associated with that is much higher than you would anticipate based on their LDL cholesterol number. That's discordance. And their risk is, um, studies have shown that their risk of cardiovascular disease in those individuals is much more closely tied to that elevated ApoB or LDL particle. Um, and so that's where measuring those kinds of uh, numbers can be really important and dramatically impact that individual's risk modification mm -hmm. strategy. Gotcha. Now, in a standard lipid panel, we're just getting the concentration number, correct? We're not getting the particle number. Yeah. For LDL. So you're just getting the the LDL cholesterol is 100 milligrams per deciliter, correct? Okay. So then, in order to obtain the particle number, is that you you would have to do a separate test for that, or? Yeah. So you can order ApoB separately, um, and many people are doing that. Um, uh, and in fact, if you look at the European guidelines, um, they really are taking that into account and recommending that um, that you it's 
considered a secondary marker, um, but but the European gu guidelines do kind of mention ApoB as something to follow as well, and kind of do outline some of what we just discussed. Um, so you can order that separately. If some people also um, do what's called like an advanced lipid panel, and you can get it through Quest and LabCorp and all your usual suspects, um, and that will give you um, sort of the LDL particle number, and then give you the sizes and things like that. This might um, might not be a great question to ask, but when you're looking at the advanced lipid panel, you're looking at LDL particle number. It shows LDL particle number. It'll show small, medium, large. Um, am I missing anything? What else will it show? Yeah, Is and then it does look at like the HDL sizes and things like okay. that. But does when you if you use that to treat, do you ever use the particle number to treat? Yes. Okay. If you're using that, are you more concerned with the small LDL? Uh, or then the number of small LDL, or are you looking at the total amount of particle, like the LDL particle number? So I think the data is stronger when when looking at um, counting numbers of atherogenic particles. So whether you're using ApoB, which is capturing kind of all of the atherogenic particles or LDL, LDL particles, um, that's kind of looking at, at numbers. Um, that to me has the, the better data behind it in terms of more closely estimating cardiovascular risk. Um, and so I tend to pay attention to those more. Typically, though, in individuals that you see this discordance phenomenon in, in which case measuring those kinds of things is more important, um, the, LD, the small, they will have a predominant small LDL pattern. So, yeah. so you're kind of taking it in. It, it goes hand in hand, if you will. I got you. Um, so you're sort of taking it into account anyway. You mentioned at the outset that you know it's it remains controversial, and you you have eloquently described that in in cases of discordance, which tends to be high with again metabolic syndrome. And I think for for those who don't know metabolic syndrome, so the five things that you know triglycerides about one fifty. Um, oh my god, I'm actually forgetting all. Somebody, you guys help me out. <laughs> what are the other four? Yeah, uh, I know your waist uh, circumference. Um, waist circumference is, is one. Your blood pressure, right? Um, pressure. Elevated blood pressure. Um, A one C of six. Uh, how high is the one It's just glucose stuff. Just glucose? Yeah. And what's the last yeah. one? Over 100 and then HDL. Low HDL. HDL, right? Yeah. Low HDL, lower than 40? Less is that 40. what it is? 40 so. or 50 me on your mail. 40, okay. Yeah. So, so and and, and we, we mentioned, again, you know, recent study showing that 88%, we talked about the obesity numbers. Why, why, why not use LDL, right? If we know that, if we have compelling enough data to support that when you have discordance, and again, we've, I think we've all made the argument that, um, metabolic syndrome is on the rise. Um, why not? Why is it controversial? You know, I'm not part of the guidelines committee. Um, <laughs> I think that, um, so what I would say is that, um, I, you know, I think that um, we do have a robust data set looking at LDL cholesterol. It's what all of our clinical trials, for the most part, um, when you look at, you know, using uh, statins, PCSK9 inhibitors, all these drugs, the, the targets, the goals, the numbers are all based on LDL cholesterol. And so some of that, I think, to be fair, is because that is sort of um, what our, our um, data is on um, in terms of, of targets and things like that. Um, I think also what's brought up is, you know, cost. Um, although Pro B is not very expensive at all to add on. Um, so, so that is a little interesting to me. What I also hear is um, sort of making it more complicated for the average busy clinician to sort of sort through. We're all so, I mean, 
you see an LDL cholesterol number, right? And you kind of intuitively have a sense of, okay, that's high, low or not. I don't think average, the average clinician, you know, so we'd have to really switch over our thinking if mm -hmm. we were to then focus on particles or ApoB or something like that. Um, so, you know, I, I think that these things take time to shift over in terms of kind of all of that stuff. I think that the European guidelines, um, I think are a little bit more reflective of what a lot of us are doing who are really, you know, seeing individuals who, um, you know, we really want to focus on optimizing heart health and not just like, oh yeah, oops, you had a heart attack, you know, let's optimize it early. Preventing, yeah. That heart attack, right? Um, so, uh, you know, in terms of measuring LP little a, they're very, they recommend checking that once in everyone, which I think is totally appropriate. Um, so, you know, I, I think things will evolve over time, um, hopefully. Yeah, at, change takes time. That. Yeah, you know, it takes time. Absolutely. No, I, I, I do like that. And you know, what's interesting, um, actually, uh, a recent podcast that Alan Snyderman on Peter T.S. podcast just a couple of weeks ago, um, we'll link to that. And they they go into depth and a lot of things that you just mentioned right there in terms of, you know, at the individual level, why the guidelines are the way that they are. Of course, there's a lot of narrative in that rather than evidence. Uh, but, you know, if Alan Snyderman is... Um, you know, you probably, you know, he, he writes a lot about particularly ApoB, you know, and he's not necessarily on the guidelines as well, but he's got a lot of great work on this. So we'll link to that. Um, but let's, let's talk a little bit more about ApoB, right? Um, I think that there is probably more of a consensus. You already mentioned that the European guidelines, I think you're alluding to the ones in 2019. Yeah. Is 2018 or 2019. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Um, that, that are already using that and suggesting that this is maybe a good marker for, you know, cardiovascular health. Some people, again, will argue that, hey, non-HDL cholesterol, which I think a standard lipid panel, it tracks it close enough. And I've had a conversation with one or two lipidologists who have made that argument. However, my just, you know, brief understanding of literature, the, the, the issues that you mentioned in terms of discordance for metabolic syndrome tend to be the same when it comes to non-HDL, right? P particularly when triglycerides are high, which we'll talk about in a future episode, how it can be easily manipulated with diet. Um, non-HDL does not track well with ApoB. Um, I'm curious to get your thoughts on that and, you know, when it would be good to use that versus just get ApoB, you know, that kind of stuff. Yeah. So I think non-HDL, um, cholesterol is, um, is, is, I, so before LDL particle and ApoB became a little bit more mainstream, that was definitely what I was, I was taught to, to use even more so above and beyond the, the LDL cholesterol. So I think that a lot of people call it the poor man's ApoB um, because it is in that panel already. Um, and I think that it, it can be really useful um, if you don't readily have an, an, one of those other markers available to you. That said, when you look, most of the studies have shown that um, that ApoB has the strongest association in terms of cardiovascular risk, and it counts for all of those other things, right? So, so sure, LDL cholesterol is typically associated, maybe non-HDL is like a little bit better, but really ApoB is, ha, has kind of takes into account all of these, these things and is, is probably the, the most accurate thing to, to measure in terms of assessing cardiovascular risk. Does that make sense? Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, again, uh, to, just to kind of drive home that point, I would argue um, that ApoB, as you mentioned, it's going to be the lipoprotein that's going to be in all of these markers. You talked about IDL, VLDL. And although LDL are primarily the ones, as you highlighted, that are going to be responsible for, you know, atherogenesis and, and that process throughout the entire body, um, there is evidence to support that VLDL does that. I mean, in, in preparation for this discussion right here, I was just kind of Doing some light reading on cardiology journals, if you will. <laughs> and, you know, light reading and lipidology. I don't think there is any such thing. Yeah. 
it's, there, um, and, you know, I, I, I'm like, oh, it, it, it can be really fun. Like you said, it, it, you would really have to have a passion for it. And, uh, you know, I, I saved this, it didn't really go through this, but this article in, in 2020 and it's actually in Jack was published talking about how VLDL cholesterol accounts for one half of risk of MI associated with ApoB containing lipoproteins, right? And so my thought would be, why not, you know, rather than use the poor man's thing, why not just get the marker that's going to be, and you're going to see, you're going to capture what you're going to see on IDLs, VLDL. You know, I think in a world where um, we're getting closer and closer to taking care of our patients at an individual level, like this word precision medicine gets used a lot. Um, and you know, why not check that? And, and so I have difficulty from, again, this is a non-cardiology bias. This is just a person who wants to optimize health rather than just treat people who are sick. Um, but I'm, I'm, you know, from your sense, who has the wisdom, who've been in the conversation with lots of cardiologists, you've trained in some prestigious institutions. What's the argument on the other side about not doing it, at least in, in this country, in our, in our, um, healthcare system? It's the, I think it is um, continuing, it, it's an evolving conversation, right? I think that it's taken, as with all of scientific endeavors, um, it takes time before something becomes more mainstream. It just does. And um, and so, uh, you know, I, I don't, there isn't great arguments against it other than the ones that, the ones that I mentioned, right? So people argue against cost, people argue against, mm-hmm. um, you know, really having to re-educate the general um busy clinician as to what to look for. And so, um, you know, do we overly complicate it? That sort of thing. Um, and, 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 and there are some, some that say that there's not given our robust data with LDL cholesterol, there's not enough evidence yet, um, uh, that, that, that we need to necessarily pay attention to ApoB. I, I personally find that we have enough. Um, and I, I think that I've seen it in enough anecdotally and enough of my patients, I have seen this, this major discordance, um, and where I get lots of patients who've just had a basic uh, lipid panel. Oh, my docs told me my cholesterol is fine. My cholesterol is fine. Um, and then either they have an event. And so then they come to see me and they're like, what's going on? What happened? Mm-hmm. Or hopefully not. They didn't have an event, but they eventually found me. And we look at either LDL particle or ApoB and, and it's definitely much higher than you would predict from their LDL cholesterol. And, um, and so, uh, you know, I think that given we have, um, so many medications and lifestyle changes at our disposal to really lower risk due to cholesterol, um, it's just, it's in my mind, it's a missed opportunity. I love that. And, you know, and I think as much as, as both Darsh and I are, and are passionate about, you know, optimizing health and, and practicing precision medicine, you know, I'm, I'm, I think just as passionate about being practicing cost-efficient medicine. I think there's something to be said about that. I think in that uh, episode that I referenced with Alan Snyderman, they, they actually discussed this issue. I'm not sure if you had a chance to listen to it, but um, Alan Snyderman practiced in Canada. So they have different, obviously, but at least Peter T had mentioned that he called the lab and I think it was two fifty, two dollars and fifty cents for ApoB, right? Something like that, right? Um, I, I haven't verified this personally with Quest or LabCorp or whatever, uh, but you know, if it is, that doesn't that doesn't really you know. So so I don't. Well, in a world in which doesn't... every patient in the hospital gets like you know the the regular exactly. set every morning, and you're like you know, yeah, I, I think probably so, you can handle the two fifty. So coming back to your practice, right? If if a new patient comes in, maybe in their twenties, some individual, he's active, he's healthy, she, he, whoever, um, and they want to, you know, optimize their chances of, you know, living a healthy uh, life and a longer life. Um, what are some of the basic things that you're going to look at? You know, of course, I know you've talked about this length. Family history is 
you know, super, super important, you know, that kind of stuff. But aside from that, when you're looking at objective things, um, what kind of lab values really uh, stand out in that initial consultation that you'll order? Yeah, so um, there's definitely not, as you mentioned, I try to, to practice a um, both evidence-based and kind of precision type medicine. So there's certainly not kind of a one size fits all approach, um, but certainly um, we do, um, I do tend to look at um, both advanced cholesterol uh, panels, so many of which we've discussed already, the benefits of e either um, an LDL particle number or an ApoB. Um, I also almost always measure um, an LP little a if someone hasn't had that measured already. Um, and we probably ha we haven't touched on that yet at all, but um, that's- Let's do that. You wanna do that now? Oh, let's um, so yeah. A really important marker. Um, so LP little a, lipotropine little a is another, so as we've mentioned, LDL um, particles are kind of, for the average person, the primary atherogenic lipoprotein that's circulating in our bloodstream. Um, for um, potentially as much as one in five of us, um, lipoprotein little a may also um, be significantly elevated and a major risk factor as well. Um, and so lipoprotein little a, it's basically like an LDL particle, um, except it has a, the little a uh, moiety on it, um, which incidentally is very similar to plasminogen. Um, and so that's thought to be part of why it is um, has increased risk of, of thrombosis. So um, what we have found um, is that individuals who have elevated um, LP little a um, certainly have an increased risk of cardiovascular disease. Um, and um, and so it's LP little a is thought to be atherogenic, um, just like LDL cholesterol. Um, and um, it is unfortunately um, genetically mediated in that um, it's very much, and this is why the European guidelines recommend checking it once and at least once in everybody's lifetime, um, because it is, um, it, it's genetically mediated. So if you have it, you have it. Um, and it doesn't appreciably change that much over someone's lifespan. Um, in women, it does go up a little bit post-menopause, but that's really about it. Um, it is influenced somewhat by diet, but not nearly as much as say LDL cholesterol. Um, and so um, in addition to being associated with um, uh, cardiovascular disease, um, atherosclerosis specifically, it's actually also, as I mentioned, associated with an increased risk of DBTPE. Um, and then it's also um, associated with an increased risk of aortic stenosis. Um, and so those are kind of the things that we need to just be mindful of in individuals who have an elevated LP little a. Um, and I have plenty of patients who have had cardiac events, and that's really um, their only identifiable risk factor um, is, is this LP little a. And so um, at the moment, we, we don't have any therapies for it, um, really. Uh, so uh, statins, so as I mentioned, diet um, does not tend to change it dramatically. Um, statins, if anything, might increase it. Um, and so really um, what we're left with is kind of niacin and PCSK9 mm -hmm. inhibitors. Um, so niacin can definitely lower it. Um, uh, it's it's pretty controversial uh, to use it. Um, I typically don't, um, uh, but some of my patients uh, have been on it for some time and, and are pretty, pretty, uh, pretty want, want to stick with it. Um, uh, we don't have any outcomes data. So while we know that 
increased LP little a is associated with cardiovascular disease and causative, um, we actually don't have any data yet that lowering it um, will, will definitely reduce risk. Um, it's, so PSIS canine inhibitors are our best bet. Um, they can lower LP little a by 20 to 30%, um, depending, um, some, it, it depends. Um, and there's some signal that um, when that in individuals who had an elevated LP little a, um, when they're on PCS K9 inhibitors, they're they had lower um, risk of events above and beyond what would be expected just by their LDL lowering. So um, when I have patients who meet criteria for PCS K9 inhibitors and have elevated LP little a, I definitely encourage them to use them. So, you know, for people who are like kind of anti-medication, right, and we, we hear about this population all the time, if they get their LP little a measured, right, and it's high, are we measuring it just to see what type of medication and therapy we can use towards it? Because you said it's not going to change much, really not much effect from diet. So there's not much lifestyle medic modification that can lower the LP little a. So are we really just drawing it to see what we can give? So... Um Currently, how I use it um, most typically in my practice is, is um, really to be able to guide treatment decisions about other risk factors. So, um, so it is, and in our guidelines, it is recognized as a risk modifying factor. So, um, so certainly in individuals who have an increased LP little a, my uh, threshold for where I'm okay with their LDL cholesterol, for instance, it, or, or particle APV is really low, right? So I, I push those people down as low as I can. I really make sure that we're optimizing everything else that we possibly can um, because of what I've seen LP little a do. Yeah. I, I, you know, I think it was maybe a different podcast. I actually might have heard you say that diet or at least maybe maybe it was diet or plant-based diet tends to increase lp little a it has there was one small study where we it actually increased um it was it's strange i mean some of the like i said but it, it's it's not i mean it, it definitely that goes along with the statin data which also increased so paradoxically some of the things that we have that we know that can lower ldl cholesterol either don't do anything to lp little a or make it like a little bit worse so I don't want to go too far down this pathway in terms of treatment, but um, if you did get the LP little a and it was elevated and now you're going to be, you know, taking that information, you'll be a bit more aggressive in everything else that you do in terms of prevention, primary prevention, but also keeping it in the fact in the back of your mind with the statin data, um, would you still put somebody on a statin from a protective standpoint? Because that's strong enough evidence? Yeah. So I definitely... Um, Definitely, and even though I know that it's possible LP little a may increase a little bit with a, with statins, um, if their LDL is not where it needs to be with diet alone, I, I have a very low threshold to add it. Do you find um, when you're having this discussion with your colleagues, possibly working in academic centers, that they are quicker to, or they put less of a fight to order this test? What, like, what's your sense on that? I do think that LP little a is is definitely way more recognized at this point. Um, unfortunately, I still think people are are thinking about it um, too late. Um, so again, and and but this is true of, of a lot of medicine, and exactly <laughs> what what you guys discuss a lot on this podcast is that um, you know I hear my colleagues thinking of ordering it in an individual who's you know forty two and comes in with their first MI and their LDL cholesterol is not so bad, right? Mm -hmm. um, oh, maybe this is LP little a. Um, which is why I think the European guidelines that say we should just all just get it checked at whatever age um, is a, is 
is a great idea because I'd much rather pick it up before that 42 year old had had the heart attack um, because you know, and, and, and again, we, we don't yet have great therapeutics, so I'm not saying we a hundred percent could, but, um, but I'd at least like to give it a shot. You know, I find that really interesting because one of the things that we all learn, uh, most of us, I should say, learn in medical school and, and during our training is that, you don't you don't order a test unless you're going to know what to do with it. Mm-hmm. Um, right. Unless it serves a purpose, right. We don't want to do unnecessary testing again for the cost of the cost of, uh, of the healthcare system, whatnot. And kind of what we talked about, um, you know, niacin is one treatment. I think that's very, very cheap. PCSK nines can be ridiculously expensive when you're paying out of pocket, um, and they only they're not going to be covered in a 20 year old for primary prevention. There are some things out there. Um, ASOs, I think, is antisense oligonucleotides, right? I mean, but that, that's like super, super early, and for ridiculously high risk patients. And um, and you know, somebody who's had already like a, an, the 42 year old who's had an MI and a couple of stents that you're talking about. But um, you, you mentioned that some docs might be uh, quicker to order this test, but at the same time, we don't have much that we can do, yet people will not order ApoB or LDL particle when we have um, therapies that we can you know, target them and kind of modify them, if you will. I find that interesting. <laughs> I can't say that I, 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 I am able to explain that phenomenon. Yeah, that's so um, do you want to say something about the ASOs just so people have a sense of what that is and, and what your what your experience is, you know, in terms of where we are with the current state of the evidence with that? So, um, so in terms of there is a one medication that's in kind of late stage clinical trials that's looking at um, lowering LP little a in individuals who have established cardiovascular disease and are considered high risk. And so um, I think we're at least a couple years out from that clinical data, though, was the last time I looked. I think it's like two years away or so. Um, so, but I definitely, you know, am letting my patients who, who meet that criteria know, because I mean, and again, to that point of what you've said about feeling like you're drawing something that you can't do much about. Um, I think that's important that in patients who, who do get this drawn and it is elevated that you are able to educate and counsel them as to what the implications are of this and what they can do about it so that they're not completely totally defeated. So yes, I let them know that there are some medications on the horizon, um, but I think just being very aware and, and, and not just ordering it to order it and then and then not, not know what to do about it. Um, because I definitely have patients come to me and they are very fatalistic and they're like, well, I have, I, I'm gonna have a heart attack. Like I, that's, and I can't do anything about it and I can't take a medication about it. So you definitely wanna make sure that if you are gonna order some, something like this, you do know what to do about it. And right now the state of affairs is, is really helping them get super aggressive about everything else. And that gives that does give them a back a sense of power, right? Okay, your LDL is currently 130. I wanted this, right? This is what we're gonna do to get that down. We might not be able to do something about the LPLLA, but we can absolutely change your trajectory. Yeah, and I think that what you mentioned right there is a really important point that needs to be, I just wanna underline a little bit further. I think that, you know, with the cost, the harm of, you know, unnecessary costs aside, the harm that it might increase anxiety in a patient. And, you know, Dr. Beth Frady's came out a long time when we talked about her initial passion about how, what stress does to the cardiovascular system. And I think, you know, we don't want to order tests. And if you're not going to be able to do something about it, and if 
if the patient's not going to receive that well, that, hey, you know, I can maybe take care of all these other boxes, um, that might end up doing more harm than good. Um, so that we, we got to be cognizant of that fact as well. Absolutely. Yeah, Dr. Harkin, I wanted to take a step back to LP little a, you know, you talked about how our genes really influence this and some of our audience might be thinking, well, I wonder if I have the gen genetics for that, right? Can you tell us which populations typically might have high LP little a, worse cholesterol panels, et cetera? That's a great question. I actually don't know the the exact distribution in terms of okay. which, you know, ethnicities are more likely to have it or or anything like that. As um I think there are it is known some populations, but um as far as I'm aware, I don't think that it would be able to you'd be able to reliably say, Oh, well, you're XYZ, gotcha. so it's super unlikely, don't worry about it. Um I, you know, I think that um as I said, with the European guidelines, they do think that it's you know quite reasonable to screen one time in everyone. And again, keeping in mind some of the, the considerations that we've mentioned, it's very reasonable to to check at some point as long as yep. whoever is going to be checking it is has a game plan forward about about what to do about it. Gotcha. And I just want to clarify: this test is separate from the ApoB, correct? And the advanced lipid panel for listeners. Right. Okay. So Quest. In, there is an advanced lipid panel. So Quest has several advanced lipid panels. They do have one advanced lipid panel that also has LP little a in it. Um, LabCorp, it's a separate test. In Quest, there's one bundle that does include it. And then there's another one that doesn't. So it, it, it's highly confusing. <laughs> so for your average person who's who's probably trying to order these. So um, so yeah, you, but, but it's something that if you know, you wanted to get drawn um, and you felt comfortable understanding like what the implications are going to be, you could certainly talk to your primary care doctor and say, hey, um, you know, I, I, I'm concerned about this. I'd like to get it drawn. I mean, I definitely think that the people who should um, consider getting it is is definitely anyone who has premature coronary artery disease. I think that's a given. Um, and then uh, certainly in anyone any of my patients who have a family history of premature coronary artery disease, um, that's definitely something that that I, I think should be checked because it's a, a, a common cause of, um, of uh, familial um, uh, premature CAD. So those are, I think, you know, your average person, do they need to get it drawn? I don't know that we're definitely there yet. Certainly our guidelines don't support that. Um, but I think in people who have um, uh, some of the, these family histories or that they themselves do, um, I think it's certainly warranted. Awesome. So we spent a lot of time kind of defining and talking about blood markers that might give us some insight into cardiovascular health, right? What are other tests, some objective measures, you know, such as imaging and that kind of stuff that you might pull out of your toolbox to give us some insight on how somebody's heart's functioning Yeah. or their risk? Right. So I think probably one of the best tools that we have right now that um, I think bears at least a couple of minutes of conversation on is the, the CAC score, the coronary artery calcification score. Um, so um, for any listeners who don't know what that is, it's basically a specialized CAT scan um, that um, takes pictures specifically of um, and focuses on the heart, specifically the coronary arteries, um, measures and quantifies the amount of calcium contained within the coronary arteries. Um, and so, um, uh, you know, many of us kind of refer to it as the colonoscopy of the heart. Um, 
in that it's seen very much as a preventive uh, tool. Um, it is not to be used necessarily when people are having active chest pain. Um, it, it's more to look um, at, at um, disease um, from with a preventive lens. Um, it's sort of widely thought to be picking up quote unquote early stages of heart disease. That's a little bit of a misnomer because um, calcified plaque is by definition old plaque. It is not new plaque. Um, and so, um, so really you're picking up uh, old disease. Um, and um, so, but regardless, it is um, a great, great tool that we have at our disposal now. Um, and so essentially how um, many of us use it is um, when you're you're trying to sort of further fine tune and assess someone's risk. Um, and it can give you um, a really good view into what's happening um, with someone's coronary arteries. Um, so, um, you know, some of the examples that, and, and in our guidelines, um, it's very much acknowledged as, as a great tool that we can use to try to help reset stratify people, particularly in those individuals who fall at like, say, a borderline risk, like that five to seven and a half percent um, tenure cardiovascular risk. Do we start statins? Do we not start statins? Um, or if a patient is sort of on the fence, if they want to start them, it can be really helpful to sort of see um, where they're at. So. Um, there's a, a, a lot of great robust data that we have at this point that it can really be value added in terms of risk stratification, specifically if a coronary artery score is, is zero um, in, in the right patient that can be helpful to help us say, okay, um, so far so good, let's keep watching um, if, if someone is, is truly opposed to statin therapy. Yeah, I think um, an analogy that really helped me, and, and I'm, I'm still in this from Peter Atia. I hope I'll paraphrase because I, I remember him talking about how, um, you know, a CAC will show you after, like something after the damage is already done, right? Like for instance, if, you know, I did my training in, in Baltimore and if you go to a place and you, you go to a home and you see, um, you know, jail bars on the windows, then you know you live in a bad neighborhood, right? I mean, that's kind of preventative. But a CAC seeing a, a fleck of calcium on, on a, or a tax score on a young person, it's like somebody's already broken in and there's glass shattered in the back door. The damage is already done, right? And it's not, um, so in a 30 year old, if you have some calcium there, then at that point, like you're the red flag, the alarm bells are ringing, like, you know, something is going on, right? That's, that's an indicative of advanced cardiovascular disease at that point. Is that is that fair to say? Yeah. So, and that's what I meant in terms of a CAC score of zero in the right patient, mm -hmm. right? So um, it certainly is, um, so not only does the, the CAC score give you an absolute number, so it gives you, you know, you're, you're a zero or you're a 10 or you're a 400 or then, which means, and that's what I was talking about earlier with the lines blending between primary versus secondary prevention, because at that point you're secondary prevention. Um, so it gives you that exact that 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 number that absolute number, but then it also gives you a percentile, um, and and it sort of tells you kind of relative to other um, people your same age group and gender. This mm -hmm. is kind of where you fall, um, and so you know the CAC score is great, but it has to be used in the right context, um, and and that's why I think it's one really important to distinguish that that this is not. Um, you know, the very earliest stages of coronary artery disease, to your point, this is healed up old plaque that has been there for some time. Um, if you're seeing that in a 30 year old, that's like, 
really, you know, we need to get on this now. Um, that is very highly concerning to me. Um, and also in, by that nature, you have to be careful in interpreting a coronary artery calcium score of zero in a 30 year old, um, because it should be 30, it better be 30. Right. Um, and so, um, so just because it's 30 doesn't, or just because it's zero in a 30 year old, sure. I'm like, okay, this is good. You don't have any CAC right now. Um, but it doesn't roll out soft plaque, right. Which is what I would expect that we would have in a 30 year old. Um, and so where the coronary artery calcification score is typically most useful um, is traditionally been used kind of 40 and above um, and in super specific scenarios where you're trying to kind of figure out um, uh, adding therapy or not. So I want to switch to, because we talked about statins quite a bit, and I think that uh, we have tremendous data to support their role. Uh, you know, in all kinds of prevention, and you've touched on on those quite a bit, um, or at least you mentioned it quite a bit. But I'm wondering before we do that, is it worth talking about high sensitivity CRP? Because I've, I've heard you talk about that quite a few times, and I know you use it in your practice. I do. Um, yeah, I think we can definitely, um, that's definitely something I also um, uh, tend to look at. And I think um, is, again, something that is recognized within the guidelines as a risk modifying um, uh sort of thing that you can kind of take a peek at and help you kind of make decisions. Um, and so certainly we know, as we mentioned, you know, uh, cholesterol um, and elevated um, lipoproteins are a necessary necessary in order to create um, atherosclerosis, but um, inflammation um, is also critically important as well um, because that damages the endothelium um, and, and makes it more likely that, that we'll see that happen. And so, um, so we see certainly in, um, so obesity is an inflammatory disorder. Um, so we see that in that population. We also definitely see it in, um, in uh, kind of the autoimmune population. So we, we now know um, that individuals with lupus and psoriasis and rheumatoid arthritis are at much higher risk of cardiovascular disease, um, likely because of this underlying low-grade um, inflammation. Um, we also see it in um, HIV and AIDS. Um, so now individuals who um, are, are um, you know, sur surviving and living long, long lives um, because of the amazing medications that we have, um, they can they tend to have very premature and and really just definitely a lot of atherosclerosis um, likely because of that inflammation and so um, those are kind of examples of, of people that we that have you know known inflammatory disorders that we um, definitely see that association with um, but um, but it's it, it becomes just as kind of important in sort of the average person who has the maybe metabolic syndrome or, or kind of earliest stages of that or really early insulin resistance or something like that um, so HSCRP can be something that we can measure to get a sense of um, what is that that in inflammatory um, state. Um, it's associated with an increase, you know, an elevated HSCRP above 2 is associated with an increased risk of, of cardiovascular disease. Um, and, you know, yeah, Raiders done those studies of, you know, that residual risk, right? So even when we mm -hmm. treat people with statins, um, we still see this inflammatory residual risk. Even those statins do, you know, help have in terms of pleiotropic effects, they do re reduce inflammation. Um, uh, you know, I think, you know, there's that's that that next big area of research is how can we we modify inflammation um, 
in a way that we reduce risk of cardiovascular disease, but also don't impair our ability to fight off infection. And so, um, so we're still obviously um, that that's still kind of um, in process. But um, but it's certainly something that we can we can look at. Um, and in terms of of what to do about it. Um, Definitely, we do have some some data to show that eating um, whole food plant-based diets um, can help lower inflama inflammatory markers, um, along with lots of other helpful lifestyle changes, which I think we'll get into, I assume, yeah. on, the, on the next on the, the next oh. episode. Um, but right. so so that's one of the things I do I do look at um, because um, that's something that we we can definitely work on. Okay. Well, I don't think this podcast episode can be complete unless we talk about statins, right? I mean, I think it is one of the most ubiquitous drugs we see, especially Altabash and I in the rehab world, right? I can't name one patient that comes through our rehab doors that hasn't been put on a statin. And I'm sure our audience have heard of statins, probably have, you know, if they're younger, have parents or grandparents who might have been on it. But just from a, like a basic standpoint, what are statins? What do they do? Why do we use them? Okay, that that's a big task in and of itself. <laughs> that's Please. yeah, that, that might be a three-hour topic. So, <laughs> okay, so give me like a couple more minutes. No. Um, so, uh, statins <laughs> are passive medications. Uh, <laughs> um, okay, so they um, super high level. They um, essentially block an enzyme within the liver that is necessary to synthesize cholesterol. Um, and so actually the mechanism by which they lower our blood levels of cholesterol is actually because what that does is it makes the liver upregulate the LDL receptors on its surface. Um, so then it pulls more LDL cholesterol from our bloodstream. Um, so that's kind of super basic how, how statins work. Um, and uh, and as you said, they are kind of the bedrock of uh, preventive cardiology um, practices all over the globe. Um, they are a class of medications that, that have been around for quite some time. Um, they were absolute game changers in terms of our ability to lower cardiovascular risk. We now have decades and decades and decades of, of really sound, robust data demonstrating that um, that in um, particularly in secondary prevention, we reduce the risk of, of cardiovascular events. Um, and um, by by, as we said, mostly by that LDL lowering effect. Um, and um, but also well recognized are sort of these pleiotropic effects, um, which are poorly understood. Um, but definitely, we see um, some some uh, anti-inflammatory effects and things like that. Um, because certainly, we see that the that um, you know in trials that where we look at initiating statins the day someone has an MI when they're you know they get wheeled into the cath lab, they get their aspirin, um, and they get their stent, and they get their statin, and they get their hydrostatin, and so, so we know, and and we know that even within those first thirty days post MI, people that get that high dose statin early on do better. Um, so there's clearly some other effects other than just that that lowering of of LDL cholesterol. Um, so, um, so they are um, widely used, widely studied, um, definitely save lives. 
um, I'd be remiss if I did not mention that they do have some side effects, certainly, um, and, and some real ones. Um, and um, so probably, you know, the most commonly um, complained about side effects are, are the myalgias, the muscle aches, um, things like that. Um, some of those are dose response. Some of those are um, sort of the effects. And there actually was a really interesting recent study, um, which I'm sure you guys saw where they looked at um, that really they took, um, so those sort of the, the nocebo, I can never say that word. Say nocebo. Thank you. I say placebo just fine. I don't know why. <laughs> it just it's like it, it like does not go together for me. The nocebo effect. Um, there I said it. So um, so it's um, so so there there's definitely been some studies where they have have looked at um, you know giving patients placebos and and you know it, it turns out that 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 we all just have muscle aches, right? Um, particularly as we get older, and we you guys know like there's everyone has aches and pains. So um, ways that clinicians can sort of um, so anytime before I start a statin, um, uh, I, I definitely start um, at a lower dose possible and work my way up. Um, if And then I also actually have patients do a like muscle aches and pains notation. So I tell them to like pay, like right now, pay attention to your body over the next day or two. What are the aches and pains you get? Write them down um, because this is not the statin. And then when we start the statin next week, if you still have those aches and pains, that's not the statin, right? And so actually having people kind of take a catalog of those those muscle pains um, can be really helpful. Um, and I found that I get a lot less people complaining about those side effects. That said, I have had patients who have had you know true debilitating myalgias because of, of statins um and so that can be a really um limiting kind of side effect um the other one that i i do monitor and probably concerns me the most is just the the diabetes risk um and and it's there um and and so we do have to just kind of be cautious and careful and monitor closely for um worsening um insulin resistance and diabetes I'm really glad that you brought that up. I think the study that you're talking about was published in BMJ 2020. I came across this one as well, but I think it's worth briefly mentioning. Basically, they took um, statin intolerant patients, right? And they put them into, um, you know, they either gave them a placebo or a statin. And they repeated that three times or actually, yeah, they repeated that three times. And there were six periods overall in random order. And the patients either got statin or placebo. And afterwards, they were queried. And the patients weren't able to tell like when they were getting a statin versus a placebo, right? So, so they were able to show that, hey, it's not necessarily a statins. That being said, though, there are physicians who will argue that, um, you know, these adverse events or effects, I should say, are much lower in randomized control trials than they are in clinical practice, right? Because again, the population for RCTs is much, much smaller than the amount of people in, in clinical practice that are, that are seen um, that are taking statins. And, you know, prior to just over the last couple of years, as I've looked at some of the literature, you know, again, clinically or anecdotally, I should say, I, I do have a lot of patients in sports medicine and rehab who tend to be maybe a little bit more active who will say, hey, listen, like, you know, I, I don't like it. I don't like how it makes it feel. Mm -hmm. Again, we can argue it might be nocebo. But at the same time, you know, there are some uh, statins that are more likely to cause that. I mean, so maybe a case study here would be good, right? So let's say you get a young individual who's highly active, maybe borderline athlete, who comes to you and, and you want to start this because it seems to be appropriate. Is there one that you might reach for initially, considering that that myalgias might be something or, you know, that kind of stuff? No. So I typically use 
my if I'm using a statin because I want a desired effect, I I typically reach for, I mean, and I see a very specific patient population that typically needs a lot of LDL lowering. So I'm not, I am typically starting with kind of the big guns, if you will. So I usually am using uh, resuvastatin. Um, low dose, um, but that's typically what I'm doing. Um, I, I think it's easier to, because you never know who will have a problem and who won't. Um, so I think personally, I start with what I would prefer to use. And then if that doesn't work, you change your game plan. So um, so as I said, others, and then there's other strategies, you know, you can go to every other day dosing, you can move to a different statin. So Prava Patava, if you need to kind of go to a, a different statin, you can do that, um, uh, that's, that's lower potency. Um, or, you know, instead of up trading, you like say, you know, Resuva at five was fine, but 10, it's not go back down to five and add Zedia or um, go to every other day dosing and then try to work your way up. So there's different ways that you can kind of modify your dosing schedule um, as you need to um, if someone has side effects. But I'd prefer to, to start with what I want to use first. Absolutely. Well, Dr. Hargett, I want to be respectful of your time. Um, I know a lot of the topics we just talked about today will probably come up again in part two. And I, I'm excited for part two because we're going to be talking more about lifestyle modification, um, the way you practice, kind of your day to day and what you do with patients. So definitely excited for that. But before we let you go, tell our listeners where they can find you. Yeah, so um, I am typically most active on Instagram, so Nicole Harkin, MD. Um, and then I also have a website, uh, Whole Heart Cardiology, all one word, dot com. Um, and they can sign up for my newsletter. Um, I, if patient, if people are interested in becoming a patient, um, I see I'm licensed in New York, California, and Florida. So I see patients via telemedicine in those three states. Um, I think those are the main, the main ways to get a hold of me and see me. Yeah. Gotcha. Well, awesome. Thanks so much. Excited for part two. Thanks, Dr. Harkin. Sounds great. Thanks so much. Thank you so much for listening to the show. I know it may have been a lot to digest, but man, is it important for us to understand. I encourage you guys to give it another listen and definitely tune into next week for part two, where we talk a lot more about interventions and particularly lifestyle interventions for a healthy heart. But before you sign off, please remember the important disclaimer that everything in this podcast is for educational purposes only. It does not constitute the practice of medicine, nor should it be construed as medical advice. No physician-patient relationship is formed and anything discussed in this podcast does not represent the views of our employers. We recommend that you seek the guidance of your physician regarding any specific health-related issues. However, if you enjoy the show, please be sure to subscribe, review, and share with anyone who you think will gain value from this. And until next week, thank you for listening.